0: Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, open our hearts to your presence, to your voice, distinct, clear, as your spirit moves in our hearts and our midst. Open our eyes to your word to us today. Encourage, refresh, inspire, uplift us, may your word change us, for it is in Jesus, it is in him, what he's done for us, that all of this is so alive. We pray this with praise and thanksgiving, in Jesus' name, amen. When I came in this morning, I I came in through the back door and everybody was uh, in there, you know, they prepared for worship and they started hooting and hollering because I had a suit on. I used to always do this in honor of the Lord's Supper. I always try to get a little dressed up, something a little bit somber. And besides, if I don't do it, uh, occasionally, I'll forget how to, the art of tying a tie, so it's, it is becoming a lost art. I'm um, going to start and talk about four Sundays, Lord willing, uh, on Nehemiah, out of Nehemiah. We're going to look at chapter 1, verses uh, 1, through chapter 2, verse 8. I'm not going to read all of that to you, but I'm going to reference just about all of it this morning as uh, we consider uh, Nehemiah and the situation that that his memoir, his record um, brings to, to us and the situation and how he looked to God and God spoke to him. The neat thing, the most important thing is that uh, Nehemiah's experience is is so very near to ours, and I I believe we could say that and understand that in terms of principle across the pages of the scriptures. But um, I wanna read verses one through four, 10 and 11, and chapter two, verses one through eight. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. Let's look at verse 10 and 11. This is a part of his prayer that begins in verse 5. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now, I was cupbearer to the king. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad? Are you sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid, and I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city the place of my father's graves lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I, had given, when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, Let letters be sent me, given me to the governor of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asa, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. When I was growing up, uh, I... Love to read the comics in the newspaper. One of my favorites was called Peanuts. It's a comic strip whose central character was Charlie Brown. And I will never forget this particular one in which Linus, another character in the comic strip, says to Charlie Brown, there's no problem too big we can't run away from. Well, who hasn't faced a problem they've wanted to run away from? Maybe more than one. Sounds like a plan to run away. But running just makes a problem bigger. The problem doesn't go away. We just run away. And in the end, we get good at only one thing, running away. So the question this morning is how we handle problems. How do we handle problems? How do you handle problems? God doesn't want us to run from our problems. He wants us to do something very important. Turn to him. Come to him. And rather than run, he wants us to rise up and build with God. How do we solve problems? What's the first thing you do? If you got to run, run to God. Run to God. God wants us to do this first of all. And when we run to him, he wants us to involve him in the problems. He wants us to include him in the plan, and he wants us to implore him for the power. That's what we see Nehemiah do, and it's a good template, it's a good pattern for us to follow, to involve the Lord in our problems, to include him in our plans, and to implore him for his power through it all. Nehemiah had a problem, and uh, it was probably pretty easy to, uh, to spot in the passage. His people, obviously, and although we think that Nehemiah was born in captivity, and probably did not grow up in Judah, but family and people that he had grown up with were there resettling the land. And they immediately set about to rebuild the city and the walls. But they faced enemies. They faced opposition. They faced people who didn't want to see the city rebuilt, the walls reconstructed. And so they petitioned the king, King Artaxerxes. Um, Some of you may have seen films, there was a popular film a few years ago called 300 about the Greeks who withstood at least as long as they could at Thermopylae. They withstood the Persians The Persians were in the train of a great king, the greatest on earth. His name was Xerxes, and this is his son, Artaxerxes. And we're told right at the beginning, it's in the 20th year of his reign. And in his reign, he was petitioned, and the opposition won the day, Artaxerxes They described uh, the people and the city as a rebellious city, and in ways it was. And so Artaxerxes put a halt to the building, and the people were destitute and in great difficulty. So the people, that was part of a problem for, for Nehemiah. The city and the condition of the people in the city. And then a third thing the king. That was a problem, too, because he, as we saw, is the cupbearer of the king, a very high and important position. Imagine how intimate is the uh, relationship of Nehemiah to the king and to the king's retinue and to the king's affairs. He is like a cabinet member to the president of the United States. And to bring such a concern or a problem to the king or just in your daily duties to incur the king's anger is a very frightening thing. And so these are some of the problems that Nehemiah faces and he begins with prayer. And it's accompanied by tears. And it's such a true and real concern for Nehemiah that it involves fasting. This is a concern that he has deeply taken to heart. And that really is interesting to me. Because to our minds, to our 21st millennium minds, culture, society, Nehemiah cared about something that didn't affect him personally at all. He cared about something that was far away. I mean, he could have said, Wow, sorry to hear that. God bless you. Be warmed. Be fed. I hope God helps you. But he did a lot more than that, didn't he? And I say it to to our minds can be a problem because in our culture, you see, the way we're kind of trained, apart from the gospel, um, there's nothing to compel us to really get involved in the problems of others except to be preoccupied with our own. Acting in one's own interests is the guiding principle of our times. And if there's a symbol of our individualism, our affirmation of self, it's the selfie. The sovereignty of self, with its loss of faith and loss of trust, is eroding society as we know it, and not just in these United States, but around this world, because it's encroaching on the church itself. We bring so much of the society in. We see God's word through the eyes of our society. We rate it according to our society. These kinds of things show a hubris a pride, an arrogance. People are defiantly marching out of the church for its failings. Uh, yeah, the church has failed. We fail. So it's a symbiotic kind of dynamic situation people being eroded by the world and then bringing the world into the church and the world manifesting itself within the conditions of the church, living by social society's ways, handling people in those ways rather than in the ways of the gospel. This, this really isn't that foreign to us. It's not happening over there. We do it in our own homes. We don't bow our knees to the Lord when it comes to the problems of our lives. We don't run to the Lord in prayer. We apply all of the social medicines... And solutions, we throw in a prayer because we hope the Lord will kind of, I don't know, tweak it. Maybe help it. Someone I love very dearly left the church. Left the Lord gotten to the point where I can't even talk to this person about the Lord. I just have to live the life. This person told me, I don't believe it. I don't believe anyone. I don't believe in anything. Those are the most horrifying words I have ever heard. If you don't believe in anyone and in anything, then you're left with yourself. You believe no one. You can believe no one but yourself. And the folly of your own heart and mind becomes the Lord supreme of your life. You listen to yourself. You don't listen to others. And that, to me, characterizes the way our lives in this world are going. I listen to myself. My voice, my thoughts, my values, that trumps everyone, everything else. So one of the first things that is rather shocking about Nehemiah is that he should care so much about a people 900 miles away. What if we were to care like this for the brokenness that's so near to us? Even ourselves, the brokenness of our own hearts, our own commitments, our own loyalties, our own responsibilities what have we started there what kind of a transforming work would the lord do in our lives what would he do in our business relationships in our marriage relationships with our parents or children brothers or sisters really What kind of repairs could he effect? What kind of building could he begin? But as long as we neglect it, as we just run away from it, we just act like it's not there, we entertain ourselves. We medicate ourselves. We do things to diminish the pain of the brokenness the broken walls, the broken city of our hearts. Oh, Nehemiah, he's just like us. And in seeking to fix one problem, he can only fix that because he's fixing the real problems of his own life. They're all of one piece. If you don't care about your own personal breakage, And wreckage, you won't care about anyone else's. And if you care about others, you have to care about your own. We need Nehemiah's people who bow before God, humble in prayer, who rise up in prayer and face problems and build for God in his strength and power. So include him in your plans. Involve him in the problem, but include him in the plans. Sometimes I do think we, Lord, fix this. Come riding in here. Bring the Calvary over the hill. And we wait, and we wait, and we wait. And then we become frustrated. Why aren't you doing something, Lord? When are you going to fix this? Can I even trust you? That's why we have to include the Lord in the plan. And what is the plan? Well, in chapter 1, verse 11, we have a major clue. Because really, we haven't had any idea except from his prayer and what he's praying and the fact that he's fasting and mourning. He's sad over this. We don't really know what he's doing except appealing to the Lord, talking to the Lord, or as we uh, saw last week, having a conversation with the Lord. But here in verse 11, he says, let your servant have success today and receive mercy, that I might receive mercy from this man. I'm the cupbearer of the king. Who's the man? Well, the man is the king. That's kind of telling right there because he doesn't see the king as the omnipotent <laughs> ruler of the world. He sees him as a man. And it's important to realize our problems are human, but we pray to a God who is our creator. And so it is that Nehemiah prays, and before God, he refers to the king, Artaxerxes I, as a man, as a human, as a person. And he prays that God would give him success. Well, what's he he got cooking? Something, right? Give me success, Lord. I'm going before the king. Give me success with this person, this human. May I find kindness and favor and mercy. May he look upon me with eyes like that. That's really what he's talking about. In verses uh, five through eight, In chapter two, as we read, we discover he's been thinking and planning with prayer. (laughs) He's got all kinds of ideas, doesn't he? When the king says, what do you want? Well, I'm glad you asked. (laughs) He's been thinking about, what would I need to do if God enabled me to bring help, what kind of things would happen? And of course, it seems almost unimaginable, but he's imagining it because he's in conversation with the living God. He's not thinking of it as a cupbearer, he's thinking of it as the servant of the living God. What if we prayed like that? Not as a victim, but as a servant of the living God, at his disposal, able to accomplish what he empowers. How would that change our perspective? How would it embolden us I'm not asking you to go to Indochina, or India, or Africa, or South Africa. How about tomorrow? What could, what, what could the Lord do if you prayed a prayer like that for tomorrow? Where are you gonna be? Where's the Lord gonna have you? What kind of challenges are you going to face? you got to learn to stand on your feet and walk before you can run and jump and hurdle and climb. Some of us aren't even walking because we're not praying like that. We're not building where God wants us to build. We're not reconstructing where God wants us to reconstruct. Nobody else is attending these problems and these challenges. We've got to do more than moan about them and complain. We're the servants of the Lord. We're the Nehemiahs. Involve him. Include him and appeal, implore, Lord, you give me the power. Maybe the first thing to conquer is yourself, fear, pride. Maybe you disrespect your own abilities. They're all things that can be conquered in the power of the Lord. His plan had two parts, ask the Lord and ask the king. He asked the Lord with mourning, fasting, and praying. I mean, he really took the Lord to heart. He gave him time. He gave the Lord his attention. He gave him valuable time because he really believed it would make a difference. And then he asked the king, and he asked with fear and and trembling. Think about this. The very opening verse of chapter 1 says in the month of Kislev. Kislev is the Hebrew month that we call November-December. So how appropriate, right? We're on the cusp of Kislev. And he prays, and he he fasts why do you fast if anyone fasts whether you do it by the book or you just adopt some kind of personal fast to say to the lord you are precious to me lord anyone who fasts is focusing attention on the lord that's why you do it that fasting reminds you throughout that period of time i mean that fast Reminds you, this is all for the Lord. I'm not eating, or I'm I'm not drinking this, or doing that. Or I'm giving up this because of the Lord. I want to give my attention. I want to give my reflection. I want, in some cases, seek to kind of cleanse ourselves, to sharpen our ability to... Be attentive to the Lord's voice and hear him. Well, he does this, how long? How long? How much time has passed? Well, he he gets the news in Kislev, and what do we read in chapter 2, verse 1, in the month of Nisan? Nisan is equivalent to our march and April. So for four months, four months, Nehemiah has been focused. He's been focused on the Lord. He's been thinking about the problem. He's been talking to the Lord about it. He's brought his ideas to the Lord. And whatever plans will, it has to go step by step. You can't get to there without steps, and he's taking those steps. And now there's this momentous moment. He is serving the king, and he says, give me success today. May I find favor in the eyes of the king? I can't imagine anything scarier. And as much as he wants, he wants to have the right countenance, but he can't. His heart is too heavy about this, and he's a little too nervous, I think. And the king notices it. So the very thing that he may have thought would put the whole thing in jeopardy actually attracts the attention of the king. I mean, sometimes when you're walking in faith with the Lord, all the things that fit our plans are not necessarily going to fit his plans. The most important thing is to have that strong, confident faith And keep moving forward in the Lord that's faith not waiting to be pulled along by your feelings or circumstances but to keep pushing forward in the Lord doing the right things everything hangs in the balance and he says he says i've never and you could translate this but he says i've never been sad or depressed like this before the before now or before the king we're not really sure which it's a pronoun that is unspecific, so it could be before this time, which could bring in the view, I haven't been so sad before the king until I got the news about my people, or I haven't been in front of the king sad before now, but now he spots this, and he says, <laughs> it's, it's really, he says, he says to Nehemiah, he says, why are you sad? Why are you depressed? Obviously, it's a festive occasion. And the Persian kings were known for their drinking parties. And they had them pretty often. You know, it didn't have to be like a very special occasion. <laughs> and Nehemiah is waiting. But he says, why are you so depressed? Why are you so sad? So the feelings are reflected on his face. Are you unwell? He asks. If not, it seems you are sad of heart. Nehemiah, Artaxerxes 1 was known to be a, a pretty gracious Persian king compared with his father and his other brother who succeeded him. And Nehemiah, we're told at that moment, he says, I I, a terrible fear came over me. One of the things in antiquity about being a cup server or being in the inner circle of, of uh, an emperor, a king, uh, a dictator, a monarch, was that they could they could fly off in a rage at any moment, um, and. Uh, Even the book of Proverbs tells us about this. Watch out when you're in the presence of the king. Don't incur his wrath. And I don't know, sometimes when somebody's hard to figure out, it can be suspicious. And there's intrigue in the court. And trust is very, very important. So he may have also been frightened that perhaps the king would misconstrue the sadness on his face or the lack of of festivity. But at any rate, he says, he says, I prayed unto the Lord. I prayed unto the Lord. It's one of the most important prayer experiences in Scripture. And from it, we learn a couple of things. Let me quickly share. We learn the necessity of prayer. Just think, if to pray, you had to go 20 miles to a special location. You had to shower and get cleaned up and get all dressed up and drive that distance in order to pray. How often would you go? But you see, we learn here, you can pray anywhere, anytime. This incredible privilege is ours. A second thing, while he is in the presence of the king, he is at the footstool of heaven. That's an amazing thing, that we can stand before the Lord and petition him. At the same time, we are before someone else, an earthly king. A third thing that we need to notice is that confidence in, comes with prayer and comes with a sense and an awareness of the presence of the Lord. The Lord is not 20 miles away in a building waiting for you to come and pray. He's present. He's present. Another thing, how naturally we should turn to the Lord. Think about it. He has been preparing for this for months. And now this time has come, and the king says, what do you want? <laughs> what do you want? And what does he do? He prays. That's amazing. He doesn't run right past the Lord to get what he's been praying about all this time. Prayer is a natural part of life. And the final, prayer was effective. The right and best words came to his lips, even though he was fear fearful. I mean, it was a terrible fear that came over him. And yet, when he opened his mouth, he had not only just right words, but wise words. And just to underscore that, he doesn't even mention the name of the city, Jerusalem. In fact, if you reflect on those words twice, he talks about the burial place of my fathers. Well, with the Persians, burial places, tombs and memorials were very, very important. If he had mentioned Jerusalem by name, maybe other thoughts would have filled the king's heart. But he didn't. And he spoke to the king in a way that penetrated those resistances. If we went back and looked at the prayer that he prayed in verses 5 through 11 of chapter 1, he remembered the Lord's character. He humbled himself before the Lord. He reviewed the Lord's promises. And he implored the Lord for strength. He implored the Lord for strength and power. Your strength and mighty hand, verse 10, are my strength. Give success to your servant this day. That's where we find, you see, our perspective when we review God's character. That's where we find our purpose. When we find God's purpose, that's where we establish ourselves when we make his promises, his character, his perspective, our foundation. And that's where we find our strength and mighty hand to do things that in our humanness are just too fearful for us to do. Implore the Lord for the power. Can you trust the Lord? Can you trust him for your challenge? What happened in the interval? Now, there may have been some communication, but I did some calculations, and it would take about Two months by horse, four months by foot, to go from Susa to Judah and Jerusalem. So before he approached the king, he had been praying and fasting four months. How much time had it taken his brothers to bring him the news? Four months. That's eight months before he's even spoken to the king. How did they think the Lord was doing back in Judah and Jerusalem where their opponents were giving them a hard time? Were they waking up every morning and thinking, the Lord is at work, I know it, and I'm going into this day with confidence because he is at work. I don't know, I'd like to think so. But it does immediately bring to our own experience the contrast of heart when we believe God is at work, when we trust him, even though we can't see anything happening. Not just for a day, not just for a week, not just for a month, but almost a year. And then, whoa, Nehemiah shows up with official papers, we can build, we can do this. Wow. So I ask you, you knowing, me not knowing, where you are at right now today and what challenges are before you tomorrow, when you will pray, Lord, give your servant success today. What's your attitude going into it? What's the challenge? Do you believe God is at work when you pray? When you don't see any circumstances or evidence, are you looking for it? And if you can't see any, Today, does it just, is it just one day? Is that enough to defeat you? Two days, a week, a month? They had no idea what Nehemiah was praying about and doing. That is the most beautiful thing in all of Scripture to me. That God was at work in a way they had no idea. And if they had known it, how might it have cheered them? How might it have invigorated them? That's power. That's the power of faith. That's the power of trust. That's the power of taking God at His word. That's the power of praying and believing God hears me. And where the church doesn't believe that, where the church is in a canoe just floating with the river of society and culture, it just wants to forget all the bad stuff of the world. Don't bother me. I wanna be happy, I wanna be content. And we're running and running and running and running from the things that are right in front of us that God said, you are my child, you are my servant. I want to work through you. There's a story uh, that Vicki Mara tells She was leaving the bank with her brother's five-year-old daughter. That would be her niece. Her name is Melissa. And Melissa ran ahead to the bank door and tried to push it open. And she pushed and pushed and pushed. And she backed up. She couldn't even budget. And she went back at it again, and she pushed, and all of a sudden, it just It opened. And she turned around. She was just wide-eyed. I did it! And Vicki says she laughed because little Melissa didn't see her father high, high above her take his hand and open that door. And then Vicki says, and then I realized that's what the Lord is doing for us each and every day. This reminds us. This reminds us. They're going to serve us the bread and the cup. I just want us to take a deep breath and pray.